Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Oh, we're live. Nikki Isinger, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm uh, I'm excited to to chat with you. We've we had a great cup of coffee a few months ago, and you know, just learning about everything you do, uh, your focus on conservation, and you know, having um, two really great, I guess, would say lifestyle businesses, right? Things that you're passionate about, and um, you know, that can actually make a living for you. I think is something that a lot of people strive for um, or dream of, but you're actually out there doing it. And it's uh, it's going to be a great conversation for everybody. So great place to start, Nikki, is is you. You know, how, how did you give us your backstory? How did you get to, to be the um, founder of Tobacco River Ranch and Glad.is? Um, that's a journey, right? And I always think about, uh, there's some quote out there somewhere that's like, let your life often reads like a really confusing mess of chaotic events and it's only when you look back later that it'll all fit together like a well-written novel like it and um yeah you know i feel like it i actually grew up uh in a agricultural farming family in fargo north dakota um spent a lot of time on lakes in minnesota and then was the first person to, in my family to go off to college. And um, I right away landed in Fortune 500 advertising, which amazingly, you know, took me traveling and living all over the world, living abroad. But like most people in advertising, I got pretty burnt out. <clears throat> and I also realized when I was living in Germany that the U.S. was doing so little about climate change and recycling and everything environmental. So I came back to the U.S. and got involved in actually with Al Gore um, in the Alliance for Climate Protection and Live Earth and started on a path of both conservation and mindfulness, which um, I was in Venice Beach and a position opened up at the Glacier Conservancy here in Montana. And so I took that position with an eye on also moving to Montana because it would enable me to um, you know, not be paying the high prices of mortgage and rents in California and would allow me to become an entrepreneur. So um, came out to Montana, looked for the Glacier Conservancy for five years, and then um, last year kind of retired there to start my own business glamping um, with my partner up here in Eureka. And then also I've maintained a website about mindfulness um, Throughout this time, um, www.glad.is is the mindfulness intentional 
site and then Tobacco River Ranch is our glamping site and the name of our ranch is Tobacco River Ranch. So I want to go back to the glacier. So the glacier conservative conservation, but tell me about that. Like what is, what is the organization do? What were you brought in to do? Um, how was that experience? You know, it was really, it was interesting um, coming to Montana after working in big business kind of all over the world, really. Um, you come to Montana and life really is slower paced. Um, internets are not that the speed that you're used to, the phone systems are like a few years back. So it was kind of an interesting slowing down of life, both forced and intentional. Uh, but it was also, it was really rewarding because, you know, working with Glacier National Park, I, I didn't realize that a lot of those people working in national parks are folks who went out and they got their PhDs and obviously, you know, they love nature and they love the science, but they're so committed to it that they are, I mean, they live it and breathe it. They're like 24 seven about preserving this resource, which I didn't really um, realize that about national parks before getting to work with them. So that was really, really cool. So glamping, it's a term that is now, uh, I guess not quite mainstream, but definitely part of the conversation here and there. Uh, talk, talk to me about that. Like what is, define glamping for us just for the sake of conversation. You know, they could say glamping is glamorous camping. Um, glamorous seems like a bit of a stretch to me, but you know, basically we, um, it's camping, but it's all set up for you. We have cabins and campers on our property and we're adding some canvas tents too. And you're really kind of, on our property anyway, you're really spread out and you're in your own unit, but then you have a shared use of kitchen and shower and facilities. Yeah. And who, I guess, who tends to be attracted to glamping? Is it people maybe who are just putting their first foot into the outdoors? Is it um, maybe people who have a little bit of experience being outdoors where they realize they really like the comforts as well. Like <laughs> who do you tend to attract? Yeah. You know what? It's, it's busy, uh, people, couples, mostly in families who do want to get out and get to the outdoors, but they either don't have the time to set it all up themselves or they don't have the equipment. And I think what we also saw last year in Montana, you know, with, um, COVID because of the pandemic is that people were driving here in hordes and there were no more camping spots, <laughs> you know, like in our corner of Northwest Montana, I mean, people were camping next to roads. And so I think it was people who also weren't equipped or weren't aware that, you know, you have to reserve your campsites and they just weren't ready for that. So um, our place is all set up and ready to go. Yeah. That's uh, it was really interesting. I mean, uh, my wife and I, we have a converted van. We have a Ram Pro Master that we had a good friend convert. And so we take it out usually in the spring, summer, fall for weekend trips. But we always do one longer trip every year. And it never really occurred to me. We had planned a 10-day trip through Yellowstone down to Grand Teton and all of that in July. And it didn't occur to me that maybe finding a spot would be challenging. <laughs> so we just hit the road. And then with the pandemic. And then I think a lot of, we just noticed that a lot of people were, you know, I guess like us, I would consider us more experienced as far as, you know, being mobile and camping, but 
uh, we made a critical mistake. We just didn't think to reserve. We didn't think to do all these things. We just thought, hey, we'll just find a corner somewhere to park. There was an overflow lot outside of uh, Yellowstone, which um, thank God the guy was cool. You know, it was probably in his eighties and he was like, yeah, whatever, just find a flat and camp here, right? Pay me 10 bucks. Thank God for him. And he must've had at least 50 to a hundred people just jammed into this thing. And it was a lot of it was people who were just like, well, I, you know, obviously I could see this is the first time they're setting up a tent, really know what they're doing. And it was just this mad flex. It was such a weird year. It was so cool that a lot of people were actually getting outdoors, but it was also a bit of a, uh, you know, bit of a, a cluster. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, my girls and I still go camping because, you know, if we're here on our ranch, really, I'm working, you know, I can't just stop and go stay in the cabin. I should. Um, but so we went up camping to our little secret spot that we've been going to for years, which is just five spots on this little Alpine Lake and it's not marked and it wasn't well known. We tried to go up there three times this summer and could never get a spot. And there was traffic on this little gravel road that it just, it seemed like a highway. It was nuts. It was really nuts. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think, uh, once the pandemic lets up, do you think people are going to still camp or do you think this is a one-time thing? I think that they'll still camp. And I, and I do think, and we saw it, you know, I got to witness this working in the national parks. It's, there's a weird, there's the rise of Instagram, which is promoting the outdoor culture. And you've got all these Instagram influencers um, that are sending younger people kind of in droves to national parks, which for national parks is great because they wanted these younger generations to get more involved so that someday they'll become the people doing the conservation, the people making donations, the people trying to protect it, right? Like that's, you're not going to have that uh, infinity for protecting something if you don't experience it. So at the same time that there were too many people in our parks, it was definitely finding new future audiences for conserving them. So yeah. So I'm wondering, I know a little bit of the backstory, but I'd love to hear it again. So when you acquired the Tobacco River Ranch, it was, wasn't, it had some work to do. When, when did you make that purchase? Well, this, um, my partner and his father um, purchased land up here going on like 25 years ago up in Eureka. They were looking for a place in Montana um, coming from Colorado and Anacortes, Washington. They were looking for a big plot of land to farm, to um, raise better quality hay. Um, And so they did that. They found this big track of land up here in Eureka and they started um, farming it. And unfortunately my partner's father got dementia and they didn't farm it for too long, but he (laughs) he's one of those, Montanans that has been doing everything he can to, you know, hold on to his land and doing, you know, five jobs or six jobs, because there's not many jobs here. And it wasn't until recently that, you know, you could work remotely, really. So the world is changing. But for him, like a lot of Montanans, he was he was out there doing a lot of things to try to preserve and conserve his land. But yeah, they bought it they bought it a while back and um, he just started the restoration of the river project three years ago, which is, I think what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the tobacco river runs right through our property 
and um, as does Rails to Trails, which she gave uh, an easement for Rails to Trails, because there's an old railroad track that used to run through here before they flooded Lake Kukunusa and created the dam. Hmm. Flooding of the river had to change the course of the railroad. So the railroad track was abandoned and that runs through the property, but he's um, gifted that to the county so that people can pass through. But both the railroad and the farmers, actually, and the loggers over time were changing the course of the river to benefit whatever their industry was. For the loggers, it was widening it to send logs from the town of Eureka um, out to the Kootenai River to go onward to their journey. For the farmer, um, or sorry, for the railroad, it was moving the course of the river to put a straight line through for the railroad. <laughs> hmm. And then once the railroad tracks were abandoned, for the farmer that owned it for several years, um, it was filling back in some of the railroad's property so that he could gain more um, farming land, more agricultural space. So what a lot of farmers did was they would um, put cars and whatever materials they had along the sides of the riverbanks to try to keep the riverbank in place, um, which seems crazy. But a lot of rivers that you go on in Montana, you'll see a car here or there uh, still exposed. And that's why they were using them to, to, to hold up the riverbanks. I have always wondered why. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, even, even the Whitefish River, which is, you know, fairly well-traveled in the summertime, uh, you'll see a car or two, or you see tires in the most random places. Like, who throws a tire? Yeah. So that's probably where it comes from. They, so, I mean, it was, it was nuts um, because we got a grant for our property from a bunch of different parties because the, so the Tobacco River that we're on runs out to the Kootenai River, and this is all prime bull trout habitat. Um, and West Slope cutthroat trout habitat, both of which are species of concern or endangered species. So um, we got a grant from the Lincoln Conservation District, the DNRC, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks and the Kootenai River Network um, to go through and preserve or return almost two miles of this river to its natural course because we humans can come in and, and, you know, try to do what we want to nature. But in the end, a river knows where it wants to go. So um, all those farmers' efforts of, you know, putting the cars in the riverbanks, it didn't hold. And the river was quite degraded in quality. And so um, we went through and returned the river to its natural course. And they have a whole process for doing that, you know, where they put in thousands of trees um, sideways. They cover it with rock, they cover it with soil, they plant uh, willow trees. And really within the first year, we saw not only a return of the bull trout, but we saw just tons of the, um, the salmon that run in our river and things that we hadn't seen ever like frogs. <laughs> um, some of our glampers saw loons. So it really, quickly is restoring the habitat, which is amazing to get to witness. It, it is pretty astounding and how fast nature bounces back. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, countless stories of the pandemic and reduced traffic, or even like, um, you know, Hawaii, the state of Hawaii and how their 
their wildlife has just bounced back. You know, they're seeing things they haven't seen in decades. And it's, yeah. it's, it's always astounding to me how fast it can happen. How is the process of getting, for people who may be interested, how is the process of getting a grant to do that? You know, it was a 10-year-long process. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really long, and, and my partner, Carl, um, handled all that. But it was, you know, many trips to the state uh, to testify, <laughs> to request money, um, and working with six or seven different partners, you know, including our neighboring ranch. It wasn't just our ranch. It was the ranch next door, the little little 69 ranch. And between them, they all banded together to really make this project happen. And it was, I think, pretty historical and, and monumental for our area, for sure. Yeah. And so you've, you've taken that and now you've built a business around it. What, but did you always have this idea for you know, a glamp, a place for glamping as the business, or is this something that happened organically? How did that hatch? You know, and, and it's, I, and every successful person that I know, you know, believes in vis- visualization and manifestation, however you do it, you know, setting your goals or doing your vision board or whatever. But seven or eight years ago, I started putting on like my vision boards or my intentions for years to become an entrepreneur and, and, um, have glamping. I wanted to run glamping and get people out into nature. And um, when I first landed in Whitefish, like you, when I moved here from California, I realized pretty quickly that that was going to be pretty impossible to inquire, to acquire any affordable land there around Whitefish. Um, and then I met my partner Carl a few years ago, and he had had a plan to do maybe a few RV spots on this property, but then backed out because it seemed, well, who knows? I mean, people showing up with their own vehicles, he, he wasn't sure about that. So um, with the river restoration project and talking about conservation of the adjacent farmland there and hoping to turn that into a waterfowl conservation area, we set out to figure out what would be the lowest impact footprint on the land. Um, so that we could build something that could be temporary, but also still be comfortable um, and allow people to come here and, you know, get out of the city and get into the, get into nature. And so we landed on glamping together. So how, how did the business launch? What was the process? Did you're like, okay, we're going to build one cabin. We're going to rent it. Did you decide that you're going to build multiple accommodations before you could release it? What was that process? That's funny. It all started because we, um, we built in, sorry, we bought the neighboring homestead um, to his land, which is a, an old farmhouse here in Eureka. When I think the oldest um, in the area and we've been renovating it. And at the back of the property, there was this just falling down weird, um, cabin structure it's it's like the shape of a railroad car but kind of so kind of long and thin and it really looked like it was nothing and carl was like wow you either gotta haul that to the dump or burn it i was like really seems like it has potential so i went in one day and i ripped up there was this old shag carpeting on the floor and it was nasty i mean the thing didn't have windows for years it was starting to rot out but I pulled up the carpeting and I was like, wow, look at that beautiful wood floor. And then 
I pulled down the wood paneling on the walls and on the ceiling. And here it was all wood walls and wood ceilings. And a neighbor told us that this was an old logging bunkhouse. So the, I think it's Jay, um, Jay Neal's family were the big loggers around here. And he had built a bunch of these bunkhouses that he would move to whatever location his laborers were logging and that's what they lived in and somehow ended up on our property. And I just thought it was too cool to torch it or dump it. So we proceeded to, or Carl sawed it in half with a chainsaw (laughs) and we gutted it. We put the old windows from the ranch house in um, on along one side of it and perched them up over the river so that people can sit in this old, logging cabin and face the river with full window views. So that's really how it started. Yeah. And I'm looking at the website now too. That's the ranch hand, the upper cabin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the two really buildings. Cool. Yeah. That's the, you see the, the featured photo. If you go to tobacco river ranch.com, there are two cabins, but that is literally the cabin that was sawed in half and um, created too. Awesome. So, you know, I, what I see is, you know, your ability to kind of bring together, like I said at the beginning of the, the interview, bring together conservation, which is a passion of yours, and then entrepreneurship, right? And make a profit. And I think moving forward, I've talked about this, you know, with other people on this this show in particular. Um, we have to show that conservation is profitable, right? For the mainstream to really get on board. Um, and I think once you start to get businesses and entrepreneurs behind it, then you start to get something really powerful. And um, and I guess for other people who are looking for ways to be involved in conservation and, um, you know, have a profitable business that can pay the bills, you know, what, what do you, what do you advise? What other areas or how do you see this type of, um, movement moving forward? You know, well, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that before. I think for most of Montana and Montanans, and, you know, if you're coming here from other places, the number one economic driver of our state is tourism and Glacier Park being uh, the real cause of all that, but it's tourism. I mean, people are coming here to experience our public lands, which I think per capita, we have more public space than any other state. So I think that it behooves Montana to not only protect all these spaces, but to find ways to let people come here and recreate because our population isn't coming down, right? (laughs) So as a country, so how how do we preserve and conserve and use our land to be able to share it? And there's probably, you know, plenty of other people out there that might also have suitable spaces like these that they could convert into glamping or camping or, you know, letting people park their RVs. And it might take a little bit of pressure off of public lands and also enable you to to use your land at least in a couple of months in the summer for some profit. Yeah, I think it's a great way to do. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of creative ways to make land profitable and conserve it at the same time. I guess maybe, um, you know, it's always it's kind of a left field question, but maybe it's not. How do you look at the difference between preservation and conservation? Um, I think that they're pretty linked. I mean, preservation, preserving it for the next generations, the next seven generations. Um, and to me, conservation is more 
kind of protecting maybe public lands from capitalistic interests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way to sum it. When you uh, when you look at your your business, and this is for maybe people who are looking to do something similar. Um, what are some of the bigger challenges? Obviously, getting the inventory that you can rent, right? That's going to be probably constant. I mean, do you have plans to to have more units? I presume you do. Yeah, we're going to add some more um, some more tents. Right now, we have three cabins, which are all um, old restored cabins, and then three, actually four airstreams that we renovated. One of them is a really cool, like 1951 Silver Streak. It was the original. Airstream, alienized, but it wasn't owned by Airstream. Their their designer eventually went on to Airstream, but it was the Curtis Wright um, Corporation who designed World War II planes and then after World War II found themselves in need of a new industry. So they started developing campers. So that was a total side note. I'm sorry, but we are going to add tents um, and we have got like lots of space. We've got 450 acres and we butt up against state land. Um, so we have lots of space for people to spread out, including using rails to trails in the river. And I totally forgot your question. Yeah, no, it was about units and, and putting in new ones because I look at your business and there's, there's a couple, um, you know, challenges of course, as you are running, uh, essentially some sort of hotel business, right? <laughs> so right. You're, uh, but you're also running an e-commerce business. Uh, because people will book through your website and reserve because that's what people are used to. And then, and then also, you know, you're in this business of conservation and marketing and all of these things, I guess, what, what's been some of the unseen challenges in doing this? Yeah. And you know, it's sorry, you, I, thanks for reminding me. I think the biggest challenge for really for many businesses in Montana is that we get about three months of perfect weather to make it work. Sure. And then there are shoulder seasons, but that's really, you know, the June, July, August is really when kids are out of school and people are here. So that that's the biggest challenge is to build things um, that are quality and nice that people want to stay in and provide really nice facilities. And then also keep the prices low enough that it's affordable, but that we can still make some profit. And you know, hopefully there's no fire season on top of an already short summer season. So there's that challenge. And then there really is, um, there really is juggling everything. I mean, <laughs> we still farm and ranch and we have um, neighbors run cattle on their property and we've got an alfalfa field. And <laughs> we've got glamping and then I've got another website and I make um, candles for that website. And then we have two kids. So it really is waking up in the morning and, and setting the attention intention to knock off the priorities and not get distracted because I think all of us humans, right, just to, to bounce from things to thing is difficult. But whenever I find myself in my head, you know, complaining about um, all the things to do and all of the different distractions, I just really remind myself that I'm so lucky to be here in Montana. I'm so lucky to have this time with my kids to be here when they come home from school and, and they help us out on all of it. They can run a chainsaw <laughs> to teenage girls <laughs> coming from Venice Beach. I mean, and so we're working together and we're, you know, we're, we're working as a family and we're getting to spend time together. And so that, 
when I'm feeling too spread out or feeling like the 12 or 14 hour days are too long, I just remind myself that I'm doing what I love where I love. So, yeah, I mean, you're going for it. Right. And, uh, I don't think, I don't see the way I look at life too. And and any kind of endeavors, I, I don't, my biggest fear is regret, right. Regret of not having tried for the most, for the most part. And that's, uh, you know, when you look at the challenges that you're facing or any, you know, business owner, especially in the early years, you know, of getting things launched and, and, you know, making it sustainable and getting through those critical points, you know, you're going for it and you'll, you will never regret that, you know? Um, I mean, <laughs> never know. Uh, I never want to say never, but for the most part, you probably won't regret it. Uh, you may make some slips or, you know, some bad decisions along the way, but that's okay. Cause you just keep on moving. Uh, with what you're doing here, I mean, and you mentioned a couple different ways, but how else are you monetizing the land that you live on? Um, well, and can I tell you first that I actually, I also yeah. have to thank you. I listened to one of your podcasts that was about entrepreneurs getting out of their own way and realizing that you need to, you know, use your gifts and, and do the part of the business that makes you passionate and look at hiring the rest out. Yes. And I learned so much from you because I, you know, was a marketer for 20 years. Um, so I just thought that I had to do all the marketing for my websites myself. And that's really laborious. And digital marketing is so different than traditional advertising. It's such a specialty. So thanks to you, I did farm that out. And that <laughs> was a huge lifesaver. So I you should direct people back to that podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad it helped. Yeah. That's why we do these yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. And then um, all the different things we do on the land. I mean, glamping is a large part of it. It takes up a huge um, swath of, of our land. Um, and we, that's, that's really most of it. You know, agriculture is not, not exactly a real profitable business, but we do, you know, we have, hay fields and we have cows running on the property and um, the kids raise Nigerian dwarf goats, but that's kind of a break even. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Yeah. That's where, uh, that's right. That's the connection between you and Lisa Cloutier as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah. She, she, I remember there was, it's so funny because she was talking about these tiny little goats and how excited she is to have them. And then it just somehow came up that you were the one who provided them to her. <laughs> Yeah. So talk about that for a second. Where are these little, these adorable little things? They are, I have to tell people, I mean, I know that there's a huge, you know, goat trending thing going on in the U S right now, but they are better than our dogs. You know, I, um, they come down to glamping with me almost every day and they just kind of follow me like dogs. They come when I call them, they run around and they eat the weeds. Um, and then we go back home at night and they're, they're probably not more than 40 pounds each, 40, 50 pounds each. And um, they have so much personality. I can't, great animal, really great animal for kids too. Really friendly and sweet. Do they, uh, like, can they be indoors on like a hardwood floor? My, my first thought is the hooves, right? Yeah, like, no, we, when they're babies, we have them inside, inside all the time. You know, we do the sweaters. Um, <laughs> oh we can go yoga ourselves. Um, because it's natural, right? That's why goat yoga works is because they love, they jump on their mom's back all day long. So as soon as you get down on the floor on your fours, on your, 
they're just they're on your back immediately so um, so that's so that's the allure of go yoga is that they actually get on top they, of you yes they love to be on top of you <laughs> i didn't know that and i'm, I'm a fitness back. industry guy yeah <laughs> how long do these things live what's their lifespan um they live about 12 years okay and actually, you know, I thought about doing goat yoga, but then we'd have to be in this like breeding every winter schedule. And I just also don't want to create, uh, you know, the, that only works for when they're about, you know, under a year old. So as soon as they put on more weight, it's not going to work. So I also didn't want to be creating any kind of industry where I'm breeding animals to use them only for four months. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So we didn't do it. Although I love it, but yeah, it's just not my jam right now. How did you get into the, how did you get into that dwarf goats? How did you get introduced? You know what? That was another thing that my, one of my daughters, Franca, um, went to a summer camp in Malibu that had, and she thought that they were Norwegian dwarf goats. So I thought they were Norwegian dwarf goats forever. And we'd always talked about and dreamed about having our Norwegian dwarf goats that we were going to name Ollie and Lena and Sven. And, <laughs> and then when we got to Montana and started looking into goats. I said, honey, are you sure they're not Nigerian dwarf goats? So that kind of ruined the name theme. But yeah, that, that was how she, she saw them in a summer camp and said, I will have goats one day. We were living in Venice Beach at the time. So it wasn't going to happen there. So when people have these goats, is this something like they just, like a dog, like they would just bring around with them everywhere in the car um, on <laughs> trips? Like what? <laughs> Paint the picture here. Some people do, but ours, um, ours actually have a pen about okay. 20 feet from our back door. Um, so they can see through the back windows right into the house and they watch us and our, our buck can jump out. So he jumps out all the time and just kind of wanders around the house and I don't grow flowers anymore, <laughs> but, um, that was the only trouble he was getting into. So he kind of free ranges, man, they are cute. Yeah. These things. Oh, I will, I will not show my wife. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't have, you literally can't have one goat. You're supposed to have three. Okay. Animals, so. Oh, wow. So, um, I, I want, I would be remiss not to bring up your uh, your other business, right? Glad glad dot is. Uh, tell us about that. Like, how is you know how long has mindfulness been a, a part of your life? I mean, obviously, we talked. I've heard you, you know, mentioned some keen keen buzzwords of intention and um, all of those things. So, what what drove you to start this? You know, I think um, after because I worked in advertising, and it it really I think it always comes up as like the top three or five most stressful jobs out there. Um, that was super stressful, but then I jumped to working on climate change, which I'm you know, so passionate about. And I get to work with Al Gore and a lot of others and learn so much, but talk about stressful to work every day, facing something that you know too much about that is really depressing <laughs> is, is a different kind of stress. And so um, when I realized that a lot of people go into those jobs and they stay in them like five or six years and then they leave because it's too depressing and too stressful. Um, and I had done the same thing. I left there and actually went and did marketing for Headspace, the meditation app. Oh, yeah. And um, I just started seeing this whole link between 
how hard we drive ourselves and the stress that that creates and also the stress that we're putting on the planet and how those things are, are linked. Um, so I created the, the site about mindfulness and intention as, um, as one way to, to help myself and to help others kind of slow down. And at the time was really talking to people about meditation in a more science-based way that would make it seem less kind of foo-foo. Um, I also talk a lot about things like nature-based rituals um, that you can say either come from the Native American indigenous um, cultures, but they also come from um, Nordic cultures and really are go back, date back further than Christianity. So trying to bring, I'm just trying to bring back some of these things that connect us to earth and nature and make us realize that we are part of nature so that we can slow down and, and be less stressed and experience it. And I think that when people really get that connection, they also will be more driven to try to save this planet and conserve this land. And that's my sort of my end goal on that. Yeah, that's great. You know, I think uh, my belief is that 2020 and the pandemic and, you know, keep talking about 2020, like it's an isolated incident, but we're really not that different in February, 2021 than we were in December of 2020. The, uh, yeah, people have been stuck at home. Um, There's been less available distractions, which means that people have been forced one way or another to kind of deal with themselves, you know, and uh, it's not easy for people who, you know, it's been so easy to just whatever, I'll just drive to and see a movie or, you know, there's been so many ways to distract ourselves, but now people are kind of locked in. Of course, that's, you know, um, created a lot of depression and a lot of issues for people, but I think a lot of other people are trying to figure it out and going outdoors and figuring out other ways that they can deal with themselves. Right. Right. And that's, uh, that, that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds or if people just go right back to normal once, you know, uh, things start to lighten up a little bit. I'm guessing that's probably what will happen, but there will be a certain percentage of people maybe made some really unique personal discoveries. Yeah, that, I think about that all the time. You're right. I mean, it's it'll be interesting, right, too, to see, um, you know, here in Montana, we've experienced a huge population influx last year, with people leaving the cities. And how is that going to play out? You know, are they going to stay? Um, <laughs> Are we going to go back to the cities? Are we going to, is this going to help us be less tribal? You know, are people moving here from different places with different interests? It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. We're, we're really in history right now. Yeah. Well, I found that everything is counterintuitive, right? I mean, I thought, <laughs> I don't know why, I thought the real estate market would crash wrong. Um, you know, you always think like, well, this is probably what the most likely outcome is. And, uh, but it's generally the reverse and I don't know time will tell. I mean, we have seen a a huge influx of people, um, into States like Montana, Idaho, mostly the Western States. Right. And, uh, not the coastal, but the Western States. So Idaho, Montana, Colorado, um, all of them. And it's been really interesting to see, because we, you know, my wife and I are a little bit ahead of the curve. We, you know, we left four or five years ago and, uh, California and, and just seeing, wondering how this is going to meld, right? Like I've noticed, um, you know, having run a gym community for a long time, 
I always had this noticing that there was always kind of like came in waves. There would be this huge influx of people that would come into my gym. And then the community would just, you know, people would be like, look at each other kind of weird. Who's this person? What are they doing in my gym? Right. And then after a while, just they got to know each other and it kind of forced, or sometimes they didn't. Some people left and that was okay. I couldn't control that, but I'm, I'm starting to see that happen now. It's like a huge influx. And I think you're right. Someone told me, someone actually from the UK was like, yeah, Montana had the biggest influx of wealth out of any of the lower 48 states in 2020. So wow. you look at that and you're like, whoa, that's going to change things. Um, but we don't know how yet. So I guess we'll just wait and see. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all so interesting. Um, so Nikki, give us, uh, give us some insights. Like with people, you know, obviously we talked about your website, glad.is, um, tobacco ranch or riverranch.com. What are some of the other ways that people can, can find you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, I'm, uh, on Instagram for both sites, uh, on Facebook for both sites and yet yeah, tobacco river ranch. You can email me at info at tobacco river ranch and, um, if you say that you heard this, let me know. We'll give you a special tour. <clears throat> um, and yeah, it, we're, um, we're here and we're happy to show people around and give them tips to get out into nature and tell them where to go and things to see. Right on. Well, I love the work you're doing and uh, congratulations, like I said, on going for it. You know, you're, you're living, uh, you're living life on your terms. So that's a pretty powerful thing. And it's been great to talk to you. I enjoy all of our conversations and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, getting out to the, the river ranch this summer, doing some Thank fishing. You so much. It's been great getting to know you. And we do hope you and your wife come out and show you around. Yeah, you can count on it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not hard to convince us of that type of okay. stuff. Uh, awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Nikki Isinger. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.